Luke chapter 6. <laughs> Let's get after it. Luke chapter 6. Always appreciated F.F. Bruce's book, Hard Sayings of Jesus, because it is true that in the Gospels you come across all kinds of uh, recorded sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're just difficult. They're polarizing, they're straightforward. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, Whoever loves father and mother or son or daughter more than me, he's not worthy of me. Luke chapter 14, the parallel text says, He cannot be my disciple. If you love your family more than Christ, if there's a higher affection than Christ in your life, that is your permanent love, your settled affection, then you, you aren't really a true disciple. In fact, he said in John 15.10 that bearing fruit proves that you are a true disciple of his. When he was talking to the Pharisees in John 8.31, he said, if you keep my word, then you're truly a disciple of mine. If you keep my word. Jesus was always polarizing the issue and and drawing a line, if you will, in the eternal sand because there was this concern that people would say they are disciples of Christ or claim to follow him and yet they'd be deceived or they would know that they aren't true followers and they would deceive others. One of the most effective tools that Satan uses to create confusion and deception among the people of God and about the gospel is to slowly infiltrate the church with people who profess Jesus, but they've never actually followed him on his terms. They've never actually come to Christ on the terms that Christ laid out in his gospel. They've never confessed that they deserve to be condemned for all eternity. They've never sought the Lord's forgiveness for their sins or put their faith in His payment for their sin on the cross. They've never turned from a love of self and a love of the world in order to love Christ as their highest affection. They might say that they are a disciple of Jesus, but it's always been for them a religious convenience. It's always been something that they've done as a way to participate in something which offers them a personal benefit. Satan is in the business of fashioning counterfeit disciples of Christ and then cunningly inserting them into the gatherings of genuine believers. Counterfeits claim to follow Jesus. They invoke the name of Jesus in prayer. They listen to his teachings. They attach to his people. They begin mimicking the terminology and the conduct. They come attracted by the perceived advantages of being around such a moral group of people. And they work the system while they're attached to it. And for some... Becoming a follower of Christ offers some periodic relief from whatever guilt and angst they carry around with them because of their life. And they pursue the world for all it's worth in their life, and then there's this conservative moral thing that they want to feel on a regular basis. So they attach themselves to churches and to evangelicals. Still others might 
follow Jesus, quote-unquote, because they have an insatiable desire for power over others, and so they orchestrate their rise to influence in and among the people of God. And they are typically the most ardent recruiters, uh, the ones who want others to come under that same influence, and they tend to be very, very persuasive. And then all Satan has to do is have enough of these false disciples introduced into a particular group who are subtle in their hypocrisy that the genuine disciples start to become familiar with them, they get careless, they begin to accommodate it, and eventually they'll even negotiate a false gospel, a message that's compromised. Knowing the truth about what it means to follow Jesus is absolutely crucial. It is eternal in its stakes. Being able to distinguish between a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ and someone who's just religious or someone who's merely curious, this is of eternal importance to believers. If you've been following our study of Luke, you remember that at some point, while ministering along the northern shore of Galilee, Jesus then went up into the mountain area and prayed all night. And then he gathered his larger core group of disciples that had been following him closely. And from among them, he, select, he selected 12 to be the master's men. To be the men whom he would send out. Save, of course, one would be an apostate, Judas. And what Luke records next is Jesus' most famous sermon... And Luke records the unique context in which the sermon was delivered. And so just to set the scene in your minds and so that we get ourselves immersed in this situation, Jesus has been up on the mountain all night long, and I'm sure the people sent scouts all over the region and had information that was passed to find out Jesus' comings and his goings so that they would know where he would be just about when he would come back down for whatever, for resources or supplies or just to preach some more. And so the people had camped out at a place where they were certain they would be able to see him and hear him and even enjoy the benefits that came with his ministry. And he'd no doubt been preaching from that very spot at some points because the topography was such that apparently uh, large multitudes of people could hear with regard to how the acoustics work. Notice verse 17 of Luke chapter 6. Jesus came down with him and stood at a level place and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So we note here that the crowd is massive and it's a mix from all over the southerly areas of Judea and even the city of Jerusalem, which is to say there were leaders there who were recognized people from the city center. No doubt the religious center. They had been dogging his heels ever since his public ministry began. And there were people, Luke notes, that were from the regions of Tyre and Sidon up along the coast north of this area. And so for Luke, just thinking about it from an eyewitness's standpoint, for him to have heard of people coming from these specific places, it means that eyewitnesses thought that it was remarkable to some degree. It would have been noteworthy that some people in the crowd came from these cities. 
There were people from all kinds of cities and towns, but writing primarily to Gentile readers, Luke mentions Tyre and Sidon because those cities in that region were long known for their pagan activities. They are ancient Canaanite cities. They were riddled with wickedness. The fact that God brought his gospel to them or the fact that in the common grace of God, people from Tyre and Sidon would be mentioned to the Gentile world in the scriptures, this is remarkable. This is notable. This is kind on the part of God that people came from such pagan cultures Not just the religious center, but Luke's point is that the gospel was going beyond just the religious center, beyond the commonwealth of Israel, beyond those that were the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and it was heading out to cultures that no one would expect God to reach into. Notice verse 18, right at the beginning, they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So if you were in one of those cities and you saw your neighbor packing for a three or four day journey and you asked where they were headed, they would tell you that they have heard that there's a man who claims to be a prophet sent from God. And then they would tell you that the news about him is that when he preached, he held massive crowds spellbound, crowds from all walks of life. For hours on end, people would sit and listen to him. And you would hear from your neighbor that it was reported that his messages had such moral depth and such piercing clarity that it shamed even the most learned doctors of theology. That's the news that was spreading. In fact, they'd tell you that he supposedly taught with a kind of authority no one had ever heard before. And they'd also report to you that thousands have testified that this Jesus has the power to heal any disease. And if that weren't enough to get you to tell your wife to start packing, to go see and hear this guy, they would tell you then that it has been reported a most chilling report that he could speak and evil spirits were forced to respond immediately and release their victims. Sure enough, when Jesus had come down from the mountain, it noticed he stood at a level place from where his speech would be then acoustically amplified, and the people would not wait for him to begin a miracle service. They wouldn't wait for him to begin. Notice verse 19. They were rushing at him, trying to touch him, for power was coming from him, and he was healing them all. Unclean spirits, people who'd been troubled and oppressed, the spirits were responding and at the sound of Jesus' voice, they were leaving and releasing their victims. And so when Jesus came down from the mountain, they did not wait for some formal service. They rushed at him and tried to touch him for the power that was flowing from him. Divine power. And while all this is going on, which would have been a rather chaotic scene. While all this is going on, Jesus turns to his disciples and sets his gaze on them. Notice that Luke puts it that way. He turned his gaze 
toward his disciples. I'm assuming here that he means not only the 12 he just selected, and maybe even particularly the 12 he just selected, but the others who had followed from which he had selected the 12. They had been coming down from the mountain with him, and then you've got this throng of people in this place where Jesus stands and then speaks, and they're rushing on him. It is, of course turning his gaze to his twelve and maybe a few others that are within earshot and then he's speaking that message that he's about to preach knowing it's going to have its impact on the entire crowd. In fact, Jesus wants it to have that wider impact because everyone in this crowd will say, oh yeah, we follow him. Everyone will say, oh yeah, he's, he's our man. Oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, yep, we're followers of Jesus. We're Jesus' people. He, uh, he's our master. We're his disciples. And, and so there's a polarizing that's necessary here. Some hard things have to be said. Because people are benefiting from what comes with Jesus' ministry of divine power. But he also comes with a message, and that is the problem. People want Jesus on their terms. He has something to say. And they want what he has to offer, but they want it their way. And so Jesus is going to preach in this context because he has selected this context so that his sermon has the most powerful impact. Now, when I prepare a message for Sunday, I can, I can hope and pray that that all your circumstances will converge in the moment and, and we'll just orchestrate it just right and I will have prepared the zinger of an outline and a bang of an, a conclusion and, and just walk you through the text in a way and my prayer is that it would hit you with massive force and I can all week long try to immerse myself in that text and let it grip my heart and change my life so that when I preach it there's passion But one thing I can't do is preach a perfect sermon. Nor can I orchestrate the circumstances so that it has perfect impact as God intends. I can't do that. But Jesus can. And he did. In fact, every time he opened his mouth to teach the truth, it was masterfully spoken. Masterfully. Every time he opened his mouth mouth to preach, the timing was meticulous. And it was infallibly potent. In fact, you can just see the circumstances starting to shape up here. The common grace of God is spilling out everywhere. Can you imagine? People from Tyre and Sidon, God-rejectors by ancient generations... Everyone knows that part of the coastal region above the Galilean Sea is full of pagan culture for generations. God-haters, multi-gods that they loved. It was all about hedonism, all about self, all about idolatry. Everybody knew that. And yet, people from Tyre and Sidon were rushing toward Jesus because power was coming out of him. You're kidding power coming out of him and he was healing them all healing them all didn't matter whether their affliction was a result of their own folly it didn't matter whether 
The fact is that disease itself is a result of the curse of sin, and mankind doesn't even acknowledge that. It didn't seem to matter to them that some of their economic struggles and cultural baggage and maybe even imprisonment and incarceration and devastated human lives and marriages, it didn't matter to them that that was all their own fault. Man, they were coming to the fountain, weren't they? And God was healing them physically, giving them supply economically. People's lives are being forever altered. They take everything God gives. They benefit from all of the power Jesus displays. And yet they haven't even dealt with the heart and the soul of the claims of his teachings. Not at all. Well, they came to hear him out of curiosity. They claimed to, came to hear him some out of disdain and contempt. They came to hear him maybe to catch him in something like the Jews. Or they came to hear him hoping that he might solve some other problem in their life. Answer some other dilemma that has kept them from believing. But it didn't matter if he preached a sermon or not. They wanted the fountain of power. They wanted all their afflictions removed. They wanted their economics taken care of. They wanted security in this life. That's what they wanted. When I was a kid, I used to go to the Union Rescue Mission in downtown Los Angeles with the ministry of our Baptist church. And mostly my dad, who, when he got saved, he used to go down there and preach. And uh, he dragged us boys along. And it was all the homeless people. And, you know, they'd come in. And if you would sit through a sermon, you would get your bowl of soup and a warm blanket and, a, and maybe a little mattress to sleep on. And, I mean, <laughs> there I was, a little kid, sitting in this Union Rescue Mission and worried for my life with all these weirdos around. <laughs> and, and I would say, Dad, why do they stay? He said, they stay because they're going to get a bowl of soup at the end of it. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. You come, you hear the word of God preached, whoever the guy was, and it uh, didn't matter how long he went, you sat and listened. Because there's a bowl of soup at the end of this. And most of them were passed out during the whole sermon. Most of them slept through the whole thing, snored or fell over or whatever. Many of them were inebriated. But they wanted their soup. You know, that had a big impression on me as a young man. People want their afflictions to go away in this life, and they, they want to talk about moral things sometimes. They might want to talk about the heart or the soul or relationships or difficulties, but mostly what they want is they want benefit on their terms. And if you offered them an option earthly peace and benefit or eternal peace and benefit regardless of what happens on earth they're going for the for door number 1 why it's temporary and demands nothing of their heart that's this group of people here that's this group of people Many of them have no intention of actually coming to grips with what the preacher is about to say or Jesus' teachings. No one here in the crowd has come 
ultimately ready yet for their soul to be hit with their spiritual desperation. God's going to have to till the soil. Many of them come not interested at all in dealing with their desperate spiritual need. Most of them, they just want another meal. They want to be left alone in their own self-will. And after all, if I can touch the guy and he heals me from my affliction, I'm good to go. That's the Jesus I want. You give me that Jesus, I'm all about it. Why do you think the prosperity gospel flourishes in our culture? Because it promises everything that you want in the flesh for this life. Of course you want that. Absolutely. You can gather the big crowd you promise that stuff. doesn't matter how many times it doesn't deliver. And you can blame the person's own faith. What a deal for the preacher getting rich on the prosperity and health and wealth gospel. If you're not healed or you're not wealthy, it's your fault, but I promise you, you keep giving to me, it's coming. Wow. It's precisely what Jesus wanted to deal with in this sermon. We're not going to deal with the whole sermon this morning. We can't. There's too much here. But in the sermon, Jesus gives three of the most polarizing principles overarching. Three of the most polarizing principles ever preached for discerning a genuine disciple of Christ from a false one. He gives three of the most polarizing principles, overarching principles, ever preached for discerning a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ from a false one. Everything Jesus says here is completely counter to where our heart naturally and stubbornly gravitates. For example, first of all, Jesus preaches the principle that it doesn't matter what a man thinks about morality or about what's of highest value in life. Only God's morality and God's perspective is what really matters. In other words, Jesus in this sermon is going to say that God's moral standard is the only eternal verity in the universe. That's it. No matter what you think, no matter what you value in this temporal life, what God says is the way things really are. If you're going to know God, then you can't place higher value on what satisfies temporally. You can't place higher value on pursuing the things of the earth and hope you're going to get satisfaction from them. You must see the world as nothing that truly or spiritually satisfies. You must come to God utterly and spiritually dependent and needy. In other words, on His moral terms. His. You will never know God, never know Christ, unless you come on His moral terms. He defines them. And so we might call this first section the sermon of the the morality segment. The morality segment. If you're keeping an outline in your notes, we'll call this section the true disciple's moral conviction. The true disciple's moral conviction. Also in this sermon, just to summarize it, Jesus preaches the principle that human justice, human standards of justice, and personal revenge are the polar opposite of what it means to truly follow after God. What the world says about justice, what the world says about your rights, is the polar opposite of what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. 
We'll call this section, The True Disciples' Merciful Deeds. The first section is The True Disciples' Moral Convictions. The next section we'll look at in the weeks ahead is The True Disciples' Merciful Deeds. And finally, the third overarching principle that Jesus is going to preach is simply this, that despite outward appearances, a person's true heart will always inevitably be exposed for what it is when confronted with the absolutes of divine truth. A person's heart, despite outward appearances, will always inevitably be exposed for what it truly is and what it truly believes when confronted with the absolutes of divine truth. And Jesus knew that, and when he preached this sermon, he knew it would separate the crowds. He knew it. We'll call this section, The True Disciples' Manifest Heart. The True Disciples' Moral Convictions, The True Disciples' Merciful Deeds, and The True Disciples' Manifest Heart. And so, what we're going to do this morning is just introduce this first section, and it is a doozy. Jesus opens up with a massive section with huge implications. Now, just just a footnote. There are different views on whether or not this is the same sermon that is recorded by Matthew in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. There are differing views. Some say this is a different sermon altogether uh, at a different event, different time frame. Others say, no, this is merely Luke's uh, way of putting down what he wanted to emphasize from this grand sermon, themes of which Jesus no doubt repeated when he preached, but most or many scholars say this is really the same time frame. Now, I won't go into the arguments because we don't have time, but the main reason for thinking this is a different sermon altogether is because Luke and Matthew give some differing details. Matthew includes some things Luke omits and vice versa. Matthew says that Jesus saw the crowds and went up on the mountain to teach them. Luke says Jesus comes down from the mountain and stood at a level place. And so they say, oh, well, that's interesting. Luke gives us the detail of a level place. Uh, Matthew gives us the detail that he went up on the mountain. So it seems like it might be two different time frames, two different events. If you look at the bare terminology, you can see why people come to that conclusion. On the other hand, two accounts of the same event, as we, as we well know, uh, can be seen from two different angles, giving details that merely seem incongruous, but aren't incongruous at all. It's just as plausible that Matthew just merely simplified the context and gave the details of the sermon in in greater specificity. While on the other hand, Luke gives us some very specifics about the context and then an abridged version of the sermon. So, Matthew gives us this generic context. Jesus saw crowds, he went up on the mountain, ostensibly to pray all night, and he sat down to teach, and his disciples came to him, and he taught them in the midst of a large crowd. That's sort of Matthew's just general opening, and then he goes into the specifics of the sermon. Luke, on the other hand, seems to give a more detailed setup and the context, but a shorter version of the sermon. So he mentions the all-night prayer vigil, specifically. He mentions the official choosing of the twelve, which Matthew doesn't do until, he, he doesn't even name them, until the 10th chapter of Matthew, after they're already commissioned for ministry. Luke mentions the choosing here, the the time it happened and where it happened, and that 12 were chosen. Matthew completely omits that detail. Luke also mentions awaiting the crowd when Jesus came down. He tells where they came from, what they wanted, and the healings that were taking place. So you see, Luke has kind of given us much more details about the context 
the detailed setting of the context than Matthew, and yet a shorter version of the sermon. It seems no surprise to me that, that Luke is trying to highlight the fact of where people came from and what they were after. And yet the gospel still goes to the Gentile world and it's the grace of God. And yet the polarization of the sermon hits Luke pretty hard. So I don't believe there are two different events. There are a lot more details you can cover in your own reading. It's not really a big deal. Uh, it doesn't really make a massive amount of difference. They're both in Scripture, so they're both worthy of study. And, and they do say a ton of things that are very, very similar. In fact, the, the similarities are so numerous... Uh, the chronology of Jesus' ministry in both are the same time frame, about the same time frame. The subject matter and its impact uh, are, in my mind, too similar to conclude that they're two different events. So how does Jesus open? Verse 20. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Let's stop right there. It's interesting, Luke only includes four of the blesseds or the beatitude language that we typically are familiar with, and then he includes as a counter some woes to each one of those. So Jesus obviously included woes, and Matthew doesn't record them. Jesus spoke them. It's also interesting to note that here what you have is terminology that Jesus used, and he was driving home a very, very important overarching point, which I've already mentioned that your viewpoint, your outlook on life, if it's attached to earthly, temporal things, may be satisfying here, but will result in devastation in eternity. On the other hand, if you live a life here that is experiencing the afflictions of earthly life, the hard life, you don't need to worry that that is in some way your loss, because if you focus on where your treasure ought to be, the things of eternity, that's where the real reward lies. That's what really matters. Jesus preached the principle that it doesn't matter what man thinks about morality or what's of highest value in life. Morality, the conviction or outlook or viewpoint that says what is important, must be God's perspective, and that's the only thing that really matters. So Jesus knows that the crowd is coming and they are prizing earthly comforts and reputation. That's what they prize. That's what they treasure. They are a culture that is stubbornly pursuing acceptance at any cost, peace at any price. 
Their hearts are pining away after anything that will bring a small measure of, of temporary relief or fulfillment, even if they have to pay a dear price later. Jesus knows the culture that's coming to him, they want temporary, superficial relief from life's difficulties. We're the same way. Before we know Christ, that's exactly how we are, especially if we meet someone who knows the gospel and they tell us about Jesus. We might have attached ourselves to Jesus, or you might have family members that do that, and they start naming the name of Christ. But they're still padding their lives with the goods of the world in order that they can be attached to what they love most here. Having the world's goods is not the issue. But if you're willing to compromise basic moral principles that are built into the fabric of human existence so that you can have some superficial measure of peace, so that you can secure some measure of temporal satisfaction, even if you're aware it will result in greater weakness to yourself and to others, but you still pursue it, Jesus says that's a moral conviction that is backward. Absolutely backward. As for suffering, suffering of any kind, affliction of any kind, mankind runs around every day, don't we? We run around every day spending huge amounts of time and energy and money and anxiety trying to avoid any kind of suffering in this life, even if we're told over and over that eternity is what truly matters. It's just like it was with this crowd. You can tell people that gaining the whole world in this life is folly compared to losing eternity. And they would still rather bank on the few trinkets that they can scrape together here. And Jesus teaches a way of thinking that turns that whole mentality upside down. He turns it on his head. Notice again what Luke records about the crowd. Verse 18, the crowd came to hear and to be healed of their diseases. That's what they were coming for. And notice how quickly the scene goes from people coming to hear Jesus to all of a sudden Luke records that they're trying to touch him because they saw the power flowing out of him and that it could permanently relieve their earthly suffering. I thought they came to hear his message. I thought they came to hear him bring good news that they could be forgiven of their sin. I thought they came to hear this prophet of God who would tell them about God and how they could know God. I thought they came to hear a man who would teach them how they could avoid judgment. Well, yeah, they were willing to sit and listen to his teachings if indeed at the end of that there was a pot of gold. What they were really after was his power to relieve their economic suffering and struggles. He fed them meals miraculously. That's what they wanted. He removed their poverty temporarily. That's what they loved. His power to stop their physical suffering was obvious and that's what they wanted. That's what they feared most was the death of the body. His power to make earthly cares just go away. His power to remove the occultic sort of tormentors that took their sanity away pursued them and held them in bondage. Jesus can give me my sanity back. He can give me my independence back. He can give me my economics back. He can give me my health back. This guy is what we need. 
You remember that after he fed the 5,000 or more on the hillside, what did, what did it say in John's gospel? They wanted to take him by force down to Jerusalem and install him as king because if he has that kind of power, Rome is nothing. The oppressive empire of Rome? Forget about it. Jesus can just with a word knock them all over. We want this guy as our king. Did they want the real Jesus? A savior from sin? A master to whom they must bow? No. No. You see, so what Jesus offers them is a shocking moral outlook, completely counter to all that they're pursuing. Notice it. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when men hate you for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed, it's the word for favored, happy. Favored, fulfilled. It is most often used in the sense of a privileged one who has received God's favor. God's favor is not tied up in earthly lack of affliction and economic prosperity. God's favor, Jesus says, is not tied up in those things. Same word he uses in Matthew 11. Blessed are those who don't stumble over me any longer. Matthew 13, 16. Jesus speaking in parables. He was trying to hide the truth from those who'd been hardening their hearts. And he says to the disciples, blessed and fulfilled are you who actually have their eyes open to spiritual things. And you can see the truth and hear it. John 13, 17, if you know these things that I'm teaching you, you're blessed if you do them. Happy and fulfilled is the person who obeys the truth, regardless of what it costs him in an earthly life. If you gaze into the law of liberty, God's word, James 1, 25 says, and you obey it, you're blessed. Your life is fulfilled. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. Jesus says, look, you want to be fulfilled and happy? Here it is. You're someone who is under divine favor when your view of moral value is counter to everything the world is pursuing. That's how you can tell a true disciple. It's counter People will strain to experience the slightest moment of earthly fulfillment, even though it's fleeting. And when they come across a Christian who seems happy and fulfilled and full of counsel that seems to answer their questions and all of their life's troubles have a sounding board now, they're even willing to hitch their wagon to the church for a while, hoping to get on on some of the goods. And then what happens? You tell them, hey, listen, by the way, all that stuff... It's just temporary. You have no power over sin. You've got to deal with sin. They say, oh no. No, they, they want to breathe every moment of every day without anything in their life that merits it. They just want to take and take and take from the common grace of God. They want to feel the security of life that each new dawn brings as the sun comes up and as they go about their day. They want to experience the fruits of human life in a family, in a community, in the strong relationships that that human beings can enjoy. They want the joy of a sound mind and personal achievement and the kindness of God in all of the ways that human suffering is relieved even in our culture. 
They want all this on a silver platter. But you come with the message that says, oh no, listen, if you're without resources, if you're impoverished, if you're dependent, if you're needy, if you're suffering, if you're weeping, know this, those who suffer in this life but pursue God's moral conviction, they're the ones who are truly happy, truly blessed, truly favored. You got it backwards, he says. In fact, look at the woes. There it is. Verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. He's not talking about earthly riches in terms of money. Listen, it wasn't good to be impoverished in that day, and it's not good to be impoverished in our day. Look, if you have nothing, the Bible doesn't say that's a great thing. Agar in Proverbs 30 says, Lord, don't give me poverty or riches. I don't want to be so rich that I forget that you supplied it, and I don't want to be impoverished to the degree that I'm tempted to steal and I defame your name. Nobody wished for poverty. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus used this as an analogy and a metaphor in one. This is the impoverishment that says, I am a dependent creature. More importantly, I'm spiritually needy. I have a spiritual impoverishment. That's what Matthew said, right? Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. Look, Luke didn't include the word in spirit here, not because he was saying, hey, blessed are those who don't have any money. It was obvious what he was saying because look at the woe. Woe to those who are rich for you're receiving your comfort in full. Well, what does that mean? It means they're trusting in riches. That's his point. Look, the people that are coming in the crowd, they want some of the riches that they see their neighbors have. They want some of the wealth that he might promise. Man, if he can heal diseases like that, he could create money. If he could create food, he's a welfare state for me. Jesus says, don't you dare come to me for the food that is temporary. Come to me for me. If you eat me, I'm the bread of life, and you'll never hunger and thirst again. And they said, oh, Jesus, give us that kind of bread. Give us that kind of water. And he says, you're missing the point. It isn't something tangible in earthly form that I give you. It's me. You must come to me. I'm the secret. So woe to you who trust your money rather than Christ. Because you have your comfort right now in full. You're getting the fulfillment that you will get in the earthly life. And that's all you will get. Notice the next one. Woe to you who are well fed now. You shall be hungry. What does he mean? In eternity, you're going to be spiritually destitute. Woe to you who trust in earthly satisfied longings. In eternity, you're going to be spiritually destitute. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Go back up to the blessed. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. Look, if you come to Jesus and he's handing out all kinds of miracles and you think, that's a ticket right there. Jesus says, that's not the ticket. What about those in the crowd that couldn't touch me? What about those in the crowd I've never talked to who absolutely still weep over a physical affliction, who still lost their loved one over a disease, who still have debilitating things happen in their life and they're still weeping over them? You think that coming to me and me solving those earthly tears is the issue? No, I'm solving eternal tears. That's what you should be after. 
Woe to all of you who are just laughing it up here. Trusting in your ability to solve your earthly tears. Because if you've solved your earthly affliction, that's all you get from God. Right now. In His common grace, that's all you get. He owes you in eternity nothing. That's the point. Jesus says, you got it completely wrong. (laughs) You have it completely backwards. All they wanted to do was get out of their earthly troubles. That's all. Get out of their earthly troubles. I don't want to be impoverished, destitute, needy, dependent. I want to be independent, secure, taken care of, well fulfilled in the earthly things of life. I don't want to be hungry. That is to say, my economics need to satisfy me. I need to have what I want, when I want, at my fingertips. Maybe I won't be the wealthiest guy on the block, but I shouldn't have any fears about what this world might take away from me. And I don't want any tears about some heartache. I don't want heartache in this life. don't want heartache. I don't want the effects of sin to to come to my doorstep. No. And if I can remove my tears and I can remove my destitution and impoverishment and I can remove my hunger pangs of every level, hunger for wealth and security and relationships and even even my economics, if I can solve those here and now, that's what I want. And Jesus says, it's not going to make you happy in eternity. Temporary happiness here is nothing. Zero, zilch. You think you'll be fulfilled when no earthly authority is oppressing you anymore? You won't be. You think you have real peace and rest if you can just throw off dependence and neediness and gain power and the honor of men? Jesus says, you want to be truly favored and fulfilled? Then rejoice in the absence of all those things, whether you have them or not, and pursue what God promises in the life to come. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 We read it earlier. Seek. You ought to know that. First. Seek first. That is to say, your ultimate priority. That is to say, your highest moral conviction. That is to say, your greatest treasure that you value. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek obedience. Seek righteousness in Christ. Seek to have your sin covered in Him. Seek His power in you to overcome sin. Seek the Lord and yours will be citizenship in the kingdom. Blessed are you who hunger now. You're going to be satisfied Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Luke says in verse 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll they'll be comforted. That's what he means. In eternity, you're going to be comforted. You'll be laughing the eternal laugh of the righteous. Woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are fed well now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You want earthly comfort? You want to be self-dependent and full of worldly goods? Then at the judgment, you will have had all you're going to get. That's frightening, isn't it? That is frightening. 
when Jesus preached this sermon, he was about to turn their value system on its head. If you're here today and you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, how do we know? How do we really know? So I'm here, sitting in my usual seat. I'm here, and I've got my Bible open. I even take notes. And you should hear me quote those scriptures. I can quote them. But, when life's afflictions come, when the world shakes the foundation of your earthly existence, when earthly securities are elusive, what do you pursue as your highest love? If it's not Christ, you cannot possibly have confidence that you're a true disciple. Cannot. I'm not talking about Christians who have temporary struggles with loving the world and wanting to more of Christ. I'm talking about somebody who literally immerses themselves in their highest affection, which is their own self-dependence, their own earthly security at all costs. Health and welters. People who are after a Jesus of their own making. People who've never repented of their sins, as we'll see in a little bit next time. People who've never acknowledged their need, never said they're condemned, never come to Christ and said, you're my all. Never been utterly destitute spiritually and utterly morally bankrupt and taken it to God and said, Lord, you solve my problem. I don't care what's happening to me on earth. You solve my spiritual problem. People who've never done that. Jesus says, if you don't love me more than all those things, you cannot be my true disciple. Make no mistake. Jesus turns the moral convictions of the world on their head. This is how you identify a true disciple. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not perfectly, not until we see Christ in glory, but certainly that's our first love. Amen? Father, thank you for this morning, for this introduction to this most magnificent sermon by our Lord. And what can we say? We notice these gravitations in our heart, even having come to Christ. We just know they're there. We love earthly security too much. In the Spirit, we love you more, but we don't act like it because at times we just drift. Help us as your people, by the strength of your Spirit, to obey your word so that we might prove that we are truly your disciples. We know we're going to be inconsistent, but we want to be more consistent today than we were yesterday and more tomorrow than we were today. And Lord, completely shake and rattle the foundations of the moral convictions of the world and any person here who loves them. Turn them on their heads. By your Spirit, turn their world upside down with this truth so that they might not be those who live in the woes of Scripture, but those who live in the blessedness of your promises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.